This week's Coming of Age episode is sponsored by OLTCA's sector champion, Arjo. It's through Arjo's ongoing partnership and generous support that we are able to host our thought-provoking podcast. Stay tuned to the end of today's episode to learn more about Arjo. The underlying message is that it'll all be fine as long as we invest If we have the leisure, if we have the luck, if we have the privilege to spend a lot of energy and money struggling to look and move like younger versions of ourselves. And that is elitist, it's classist, it's therefore racist, it's sexist because there's much more emphasis on women. God forbid we should look our age, right? We're penalized for that much more than men. Aging is gendered and it sets us up to fail. It sets us against each other, which all prejudice does. None of that is good for us, individually or collectively. This is Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population, a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I'm also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. Welcome, everyone, to Coming of Age. I'm your host, Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association in Ontario, Canada. This is the last episode of our second season, and I am delighted to welcome anti-ageism advocate Ashton Applewhite. Ashton is a writer, an activist, and an internationally recognized expert on ageism. Most recently, she was named one of the Healthy Aging 50 by the Decade of Healthy Aging Platform, a collaboration between the United Nations and the World Health Organization. The impact of ageism has been discussed repeatedly on our podcast this season, and there is no better way than to end our time together than with a deep dive into this important topic with someone who's done some extraordinary research. I know you'll come away from this discussion with new eyes for ageism in our society, as well as with a better understanding of how each one of us can be a catalyst for change. Welcome, everybody, to Coming of Age. I am so excited and so delighted today to welcome a truly extraordinary individual and leader to our podcast, Ashton Applewhite. Her book, This Chair Rocks, A Manifesto Against Ageism, is a Bible for those of us who care deeply about normalizing aging and rethinking how we talk about uh, the older generation and uh, how we take each day forward. So with that, welcome, Ashton. So privileged to have you join us and really excited about the opportunity today to talk about the possibilities of aging. So many of our earlier episodes have been focused on public policy, the challenges of the health and social care systems for older people, and really privileged to welcome you to talk about something more optimistic. Thank you. And obviously, if we don't change public policy, we don't have the impact we want. So we're all, you know, rowing the boat. And my goal is to help make it easier for public policy people to understand what's at stake here with population aging and how central confronting 
ageism is to achieving equal rights across the lifespan. Almost every one of our episodes, our interviews, we we talk about ageism. Can you speak to us about how you define ageism and how it presents itself in everyday life? The dictionary definition is stereotyping and discrimination on the basis of age. We are being ageist anytime we make an assumption about someone or a group of people on the basis of how old we think they are. That includes you're too young. In addition to you're too old, younger people experience a lot of ageism, but we live in a very youth-obsessed society in the West, and older people do indeed bear the brunt of it. It is not legal or ethical to allocate resources by race or by sex. Of course, it still happens, but it is no more acceptable to weigh the needs of the young against the old. And we see this all the time, particularly acutely in healthcare, in your field. And, you know, if possible, when that argument comes up, you know, why should we spend money on old people when we could spend it on kids? False equation. It's not an acceptable ethical or legal way to frame the problem. So try and point that out early on before you get into the weeds. We disenfranchise those who have no voices. Exactly. And, and are, are not able. And while children, we speak for them, uh, for our seniors, uh, we take their voice away from them because we're afraid of it. We don't want to talk about my father had Alzheimer's and lived and died with Alzheimer's. I've experienced the double death, the loss of a personality, as well as the, the loss of someone who, for whom uh, I care deeply uh, and uh, saw people leave friends of his who'd who'd been around for decades since his childhood were not there in the end. There's an interesting connection between ageism and Alzheimer's. Would you like me to touch on that? I would love that. Everywhere in the world, people are living longer. You can see this as a disaster, as an amazing opportunity and triumph of public health. I think it is the latter, obviously. I also think it poses real challenges with which people in your field are dealing, doing really heroic, important work to um, create and sustain the kind of support that an older population will require, not because we are older, but because we do encounter some kind of physical impairment in greater numbers as we get older. To my mind, the best, the most sort of ideologically neutral argument for mobilizing against ageism, whether you think all these older people, you know, are the proverbial gray tsunami, that icky, terrifying, incredibly biased metaphor, or again, an opportunity to tap into the social and economic capital of millions more healthy, well-educated adults than ever before in human history. You don't want us to be sick and cost money. And there is more and more and more data about the connection between attitudes towards aging and how our minds and bodies function at the cellular level. Most of the work has been done by a psychologist and epidemiologist at Yale named Becca Levy, who has a fantastic new book out all about this called Breaking the Age Code, how your beliefs about aging shape how long and how well you will live. People with more accurate attitudes about aging are less likely to get Alzheimer's, even if they have the gene that predisposes them to the disease. This is why 
the World Health Organization, not the World Old People Organization, launched a global campaign to combat ageism 18 months ago because they realized that the biggest obstacle to increasing health span along with lifespan was not, you know, clean water or education. It was age bias between our ears and in the world around us. Well, and that's the, yeah, I think you're referencing the, the Decade of Healthy Aging initiative, uh, which yes. has recognized The Decade you. of Healthy Aging, from which I just received, they named 50 leaders and I was one of them. An unbelievable honor. I'm still pinching myself. That is just one component of this decade platform, which launched in 2020, but then they got a little busy with a global pandemic. But they released this fantastic global campaign to combat ageism. That is the actual name of it for this reason. And I just want to let people know that there is a site called the Old School Anti-Ageism Clearinghouse. The website is uh, oldschool.info. I created it with two colleagues because we thought, wouldn't it be great if this emerging movement had a central repository of all the best resources to educate people about what ageism is, how to identify it, what it does, and how to hopefully dismantle it. And you can find the World Health Organization site. You can find Becca Levy's book. You can find anything I've done. Um, on that site, oldschool.info, and everything is free except the books. I really encourage everyone to go because what I find is um, your approach and your tone and approach is anchored in reality, but it's also so optimistic. If I were going to be a cynic, I would say, you know, yes, it's optimistic because our view is so grim, but, you know, you really can't read my book without coming out more optimistic about feeling better about the years ahead. Let's put it that way. I created Yo! Is This Ageist modeled on the pre-existing and fantastic Yo! Is This Racist blog with permission because, as you said, what what is ageism? How does it manifest in our daily life? I didn't get around to that. And Yo! Is This Ageist is a question and answer blog where you can send in something you've read, something you've seen, maybe something you know you saw, you witnessed, and get my take on why it is or is not ageist and, and you know, perhaps what, what you might do in that situation. I mean, very crude but legitimate litmus test is if a similar comment or behavior on the basis of race, sex, gender wouldn't pass muster, then it's probably ageist. Yeah, such a such a great point. And to your earlier point as well, the minority of people are going to go into a care home, a long-term care. We are facing as people grow older and live longer, more chronic diseases, but we have remedies. Uh, we, we, we we're can... better at managing them. I mean, people age well, not by avoiding these things. Good luck with that. It just, it depends an awful lot on, on luck, on your environment, but by adapting to them. People end up in long-term care, not because they grow old, but because they encounter disability. So much of our fear, our apprehension around aging is about how our minds and bodies may change. That is not actually about age because plenty of younger people are disabled. Lots of older people, I mean, the percentage of Americans over 65 in nursing homes is 2.5%. I think it's 3% in Canada, but 
we all, if we live long enough, will encounter some form of impairment. Cognitive decline, you know, is not inevitable. Alzheimer's statistic for the U.S., the total population, 65 and up, is one out of 10. That's a lot of people, but the curve goes way, way up steeply. Age is the biggest risk factor. You're not going to find me, you know, soft pedaling any of that, but it hugely increases in your late 80s and into your 90s. I'm so sorry your dad, you know, had to go through it and you too, but it is not typical of aging. And when we catastrophize out of ignorance and fear, reluctance to look at the reality, that's why it's good to learn about aging because our fears are so out of proportion to reality. And those fears make us more vulnerable to exactly what we fear. Yeah, it's such a great point. You know, I've seen such remarkable examples of aging. My husband's grandmother lived until she was almost 101. She published her biography on her 100th birthday oh, right. and was doing media. <laughs> we think about the queen and uh, everyone seems so amazed that uh, she was still working until you know, the day before she passed away. And uh, but Although the it, queen, I can't resist pointing out, there's a British magazine called The Oldie. And they give an award every year to someone who is setting a remarkable example of aging well, which I think we can all agree that the queen did. She turned it down. She was unable, as is true of so many of us, to see herself to identify as old. Ageism takes root in denial, our reluctance to acknowledge that we are going to get old and that we might even be old. That's how it sinks its claws in us. If that's a personal blind spot, how do we tackle those blind spots? So the most important, hardest, most necessary step is to look at our own attitudes towards age and aging. I'll reference the World Health Organization's terrific campaign again. It says we have to think about how we look, feel, and act around aging. Stereotypes, prejudice between our ears, right? Do we believe those stereotypes? and discrimination. How do we act on them? The only thing we can control is our own thoughts and actions. Unlearning is hard. We have all been bombarded with negative ideas about how awful it's going to be to get old and how tragic it will be to become uh, impaired in any way. And it's hard to unlearn, especially when it comes to values. And most of this bias is unconscious. But we can't undo bias unless we become aware of it. My favorite comment about my book is, oh, geez, I had no idea how much of this stuff I had internalized and how I am complicit. I mean, that's a tough word. But, you know, when we don't challenge these ideas, we do become complicit in our own marginalizations. If we believe that we lose value as human beings as we get older, then that affects how we think about ourselves and how we move out into the world as older people. But the flip side is also true. When you start to see the next step, you go like, oh, I am part of the problem because I am biased, as we all are. I am ages too. No judgment. Hats off to anyone that can think that, not to mention say it aloud. Once you have that realization, it is like letting a genie out of a bottle you start to see it. It just happens. Once you start to see it around you, oh, 
There are no older people out on the streets. Oh, all the advertising is of people in their 20s. Oh, every time they talk about, you know, political problems in the U.S., they blame it on how old the politicians are instead of how corrupt our system is. On and on and on and on. That is liberating. You see, oh, it's not that I am flawed or wrong. It's that this stuff is embedded in political and social and economic systems around us and that we can come together and do something about it. Could you share what the impetus was for your genie to become uncorked? <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's, there's no meat cute story, but I was in my mid fifties. I'm 70 now. I realized that I was really, really apprehensive about getting older. It's that simple and being nerdy. I mean, I'm not an academic, but I really do my homework and I'm very, very careful about the sources that I cite. I started learning about longevity and interviewing older people. And in a matter of months, I learned that statistic about how few people were in nursing homes. I learned about the U-curve of happiness, which is shows that people are happiest at the beginnings and the ends of their lives everywhere. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be married. And that older people enjoyed better mental health than younger ones. We get better at the long view and not sweating the small stuff. The U-curve is a function of the way aging itself affects the healthy brain and so on. And I'm, you know, I'm probably more data-driven than most people, but I was like, whoa, why don't we know this stuff? And that was well before I learned how not knowing that stuff harmed our health. And if aging can be framed as a problem, we can be, you know, persuaded to buy stuff to like fix it or cure it, air quotes around those. If transitions, you know, physical transitions are pathologized, and sometimes they are indeed an indicator of disease. I'm not saying there's no treatment, but, you know, mild cognitive impairment, changing hormone levels, if they are pathologized, turned into something scary, then people make money off selling you remedies that don't work. One thing that works is checking your age bias and it's free. We recently conducted some interviews with individuals in Canada between the age of 60 and 75. And we asked them about their perceptions of aging, the, how they were planning in terms of their journey in aging. The majority of them said that they weren't. They weren't talking about it. Shocker. They hadn't even contemplated that one day they might need more care. They were assuming that their family members would look after them. They had no financial planning. It's the ostrich. So I head in the sand. If we don't talk about it, then we won't have to deal with it. We see how that works out. I mean, in, in the U.S., I think some horrendous percentage of Americans has less than $400 in savings. It's also gendered because you know, when we look to our family members, as we all do, you know, and caring for people is a beautiful, really important part of being human, as you all know better than I do. What makes it hard is to go alone without supports. And we have a society without supports. But I digress. Humans as a species are not good at planning ahead. But one of the reasons I think it's really important to educate ourselves about ageism is because it means acknowledging that we are going to get older. No one wants to die young, no matter how apprehensive they may be. And no one actually wants to go back to their youth either. 
I'd like my 18-year-old joints back, thank you, but I would like to hang on to my 70-year-old brain because it reflects all the things I've done and been. My years are what make me me and make you you. If we don't think about aging, if we pretend that it's never going to happen to us, we not only don't prepare ourselves in all the necessary ways, another thing that ageism does is make uh, discussions about what we might want towards the end of life harder and less accessible. And we all know we want as much control as possible over the way in which we die. And the way to do that is to bring it up. It's a Pandora's box, maybe. You know, all the scary, scary things are in that box. There are real legitimate things to worry about, about getting older, running out of money, getting sick, ending up alone, having reduced capacity. Those fears are legitimate and real. But if we look at them, just the act of looking at them makes them way less scary. And then you can close the box again, but open it again in six months, you know. And and are those fears manifestations of ageism? Our reluctance to look at them absolutely are ageism and also ableism. Aging is not disability. Disability is not the same as aging, but they do overlap in ways that are important to acknowledge. You know, everyone is ageist and everyone is ableist, but people with disabilities, you know, I may have a disability, but at least I'm not old. And there's so much stuff around in oldness around like, I may be old, but I can still, that still word, date younger women, drive at night, walk up the stairs. And we all have those stills, no judgment. But the underlying message is that it'll all be fine as long as we invest, if we have the money, if we have the leisure, if we have the luck, if we have the privilege to spend a lot of energy and money struggling to look and move like younger versions of ourselves. And that is elitist, it's classist, it's therefore racist, it's sexist because there's much more emphasis on women. God forbid we should look our age, right? We're penalized for that much more than men. Aging is gendered and it sets us up to fail. It sets us against each other, which all prejudice does. None of that is good for us, individually or collectively. Aging is complicated. It's different for each of us. It's especially complicated for women. Who, and we each need to negotiate these things in our own way and at our own speed without judging each other. Throughout my life, I, I've always gravitated to older people. So when I was a, a oh, child, you're my a weirdo. I know my first my first pen pals were uh, friends of my grandmother's in in the United Kingdom. Oh, and that shaped your life, didn't it? You know, I've come full circle in a, in a very odd kind of way. As we think about the baby boomers, to your point, we talk about the gray tsunami. Um, uh, one of my colleagues in France referred to it as uh, le bomb de baby boomers. <laughs> That's a new one. Thanks. That's uh, le bomb. <laughs> You know, we're talking about this demographic shift where uh, in Ontario, Canada alone, in the next 15 years, the population over 80 is going to double. I mean, if you think about gray tsunami, that is alarmist rhetoric. It conjures up this frankly terrifying image of this tidal wave paused to like swamp the shores and swamp, suck all the good stuff out to sea and leave younger people with nothing. The post-war baby boom is the best studied demographic phenomenon in history. We have had 70 years to prepare for it. 
The question is, why have we not prepared better? And one answer is ageism, of course, and ableism, which is discomfort, prejudice around people with physical and cognitive disabilities. It is going to be a real challenge to scale up the support that an older population will require because we are going to have more chronic illness and we are going to become disabled in greater numbers. One reason there is population aging as a global phenomenon is that people used to die young and we don't anymore in anywhere near as great numbers. And, you know, this is a triumph of public health. We do need to scale up support, but we need to look at why we're not thinking about that more energetically. I want to make a point about generational labels. They are so tempting. And I was born in 1952, dead center in the baby boom. However, I have come to understand that, first of all, you nerds out there, there is no agreed upon scientific definition of what a generation is. And when we label people, boomers, Gen X, millennials, all sorts of associations fall into place. Typically, unconsciously, we can't help it. But the notion that everyone, the millions and millions of people born roughly around that same time, have anything in common is clearly absurd, right? And it leads to stereotyping. It leads to finger pointing, right? You know, oh, those pesky Gen Zs, you know, they're so picky in the workplace. It obscures. Generational labels obscure the far greater role that class in particular and gender and ethnicity play in shaping our experiences and in shaping what we do and don't have in common than age does. I want a world where we name our age, but where recedes because it is so much less important than we think it is. For the benefit of our listeners, how do we mobilize? How do we create that? How do we join the movement and not accept that divisiveness? How do we change that channel? Well, I want to point out that, you know, not everyone is, you know, going to end up like me. And let me make it clear. I, I may be at the forefront of this movement, but there are many, many, you know, thousands of wonderful people helping make it happen. There is no leader. You know, we do need a grassroots movement like the women's movement to challenge ageism, but it's manifest differently in your life than it is in mine. So each of us is going to approach this in our own way and at our own time. Any change you make, however small and how you relate to your own aging process, your own self as an older person, your own self as a young person who acknowledges, I'm going to get old, becomes what I call, it's a phrase from geriatrician Joanne Lins, become an old person in training. Make that imaginative connection to your future older self at whatever distance is tolerable. She can be a speck far, far away. But if you acknowledge, like, I'm going to get old someday, then you get off this hamster wheel of dread. And the earlier in life we can do that, the better off we'll be because it's not healthy to go through life dreading our futures. So even if you just think about the way you use the words old and young, try and break the habit of using young to mean sexy with it and old to mean sad or confused or incompetent because we can feel any of those things at any age. 
and then you see yourself differently, that changes the way you are in the world. So there is no act too small. I want to send people to the old school clearinghouse, oldschool.info, because there are tons of resources. Not one resources fits everyone. There are some policy papers. There are tons of resources for the general public. There are language guides. There are podcasts. There are free downloadable guides to starting a conversation. What a great place to end. Old School Clearinghouse is the destination. I'm going to ask our uh, listeners to, to join you there, to contribute, to participate. And Ashton, I really do want to thank you for being such a transformational leader, for providing a voice and making the world a better place to be in, to grow older. Thank you to you and your members for the really important work that you do. It's undervalued because of ageism and ableism, and it's so important. As we conclude this season of our podcast, I hope you'll join me in taking the time to reflect on Ashton's comments about ageism and about how we can make shifts in our own biases, including how we think about our own aging process. When Ashton was given an honor for her work in anti-ageism by the World Health Organization this year, the final paragraph in her recognition read, Ashton Applewhite shows us that a world for all ages is indeed possible if we recognize the potential within each of us, speak truth to power, and stand together as one. I think that's a fitting way to end this episode and our inspirational second season. Thank you for listening. This week's Coming of Age episode is sponsored by OLTCA's sector champion, Arjo. Arjo believes that empowering movement within healthcare environments is essential to quality care with products and solutions that are designed to promote a safe, and dignified experience through patient handling, medical beds, personal hygiene, disinfection, and the prevention of pressure injuries and venous thromboembolism, Arjo is committed to driving healthier outcomes for people facing mobility challenges. Learn more about Arjo Solutions at arjo.ca. Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate the show five stars, and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan.